0: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Catherine Smithies, a medieval historian at the University of Melbourne in Australia, to talk about her new book, Introducing the Medieval Ass, out uh, last year, 2020, with the University of Wales Press. Hi Catherine and welcome to the podcast. Hi Jana, thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's wonderful to talk to you. How are you today? It's your evening, yes? It is. It's uh, 4pm and...
1: I'm sat in my woolly jumper because it's the middle of winter and it's very cold here.
0: Well, I mean, Australia cold, right? Yes, not quite north Northern European cold. No, no, not
1: quite right. It's not a a Northern European winter, but it's it's our winter all the same. So it's about five degrees.
0: Oh yeah, that's uh, that's legit. That's cold. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm like you know sitting in Amsterdam in a in a uh, singlet, like hoping that I will not sweat to death. Um, okay, so you're a medievalist, uh, like a, a medievalist, medievalist, in that way. Um, With this interest in vernacular French literature. So I see work on family history, gender, some lepers, interestingly, which I think I'm going to pick up next. I'm I'm suddenly interested in lepers. Okay. Um, And then there's this shift to the ass. How did that come about? (laughs) Um, So my
1: my primary focus is uh the old french fabliau which uh were a series of very funny quite rude stories that were written in the 13th century and you're quite right that it's quite a leap it seems quite a leap from these funny stories to um to the medieval ass or the medieval donkey but um it's it's quite straightforward really because um I became, I got to know of a group, a scholarly group called the International Reynard Society, and the main interest is obviously the Reynard the Fox stories but they're interested in animals in medieval literature and one of their original members was a a Fablio scholar and so the Fablio were sort of invited to join if you you like and they've been going about 40 years and they have a conference every two years and I got to know them and become a member of the group and so every time I go I have to present on an animal that appears in the Fablio and there is there are a few donkeys Um, And so that's how it came about, really.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Makes perfect sense. And actually, I mean, it's clear, right? Um, And it's one of the ways it's clear is from your source material, which is something else I'd like you to talk about. Like, what did you use for this book?
1: Oh, well, the sources were quite um, difficult, interesting, eclectic. Mm -hmm. Um, All those things. If I go back a step, and you think about the historiography of the medieval ass, there isn't really a body of scholarship that's focused purely on the ass. Um, mm-hmm. It's always sort of a an add-on, if, if you like. So mm-hmm. finding sources was quite difficult because you have to find what other people have written, and then go to the primary source material, and then try and build a picture. Of the medieval ass in, you know, uh, in medieval mm-hmm. of the ass in medieval society, um, mm-hmm. so that was that was quite a challenge. Um, and what I found really was that my sources obviously informed the chapters. So mm-hmm. there were some sources that looked at uh, the ass in its natural world, so how how it lived on farms, how it helped people in war, at markets, in like trade and commerce. Uh, as a pack animal. So there were some sources like that, but they're so few and far between, uh, and they're so spread out across mm-hmm. medieval Europe that you're picking little snippets from here, from there, and then trying to build a picture. Um, So there were sources, obviously, that informed the natural world. Then I had all the religious sources, you know, mm-hmm. obviously the Bible, um Bible hagiographies were were, you know stories of saints and their interaction with with animals and and obviously the ass um you've got the scholastic sources Uh, so you can see how eclectic it is Mm -hmm. Uh, and obviously you've read the book how it's informed Mm -hmm. the chapters um you know but you've got all the time you've got this donkey the donkey's reputation as either a stubborn and slow beast or as a humble beast associated with Christ that just keeps cropping up all all the Mm -hmm. time. Uh, And then, of course, there's probably more examples of the donkey in literature, literature that was written for entertainment, so fables, the fabio, um,
0: poems, and and all sorts of that sort of literature. Um, Sure, and I mean, you can see it because you organize the book into four thematic chapters, listeners, scientific, religious, scholastic and literary. And it, it was very clear that the kind of material you found, you could group it quite naturally in these ways. Right. It, it could that clearly informs your decision. And your sources are so varied, um, you know, and I'm, I'm an historian myself. Um so when I was reading this and I was thinking about just the amount of time you must have sent, spent sifting through, you know, and it's rewarding and wonderful and we, we all love what we do. Right. But it was sometimes it would be really nice if the, you know, like I think about my colleagues who have indexes in or sortable <laughs> databases. And I think like, wow, you that's that's nice. That would be nice. So I could fully see that. Um and you do, but they're everywhere, you know. You see, um, and, and surprisingly consistently, which we'll get into. But they're they're just everywhere. These fables, obviously. But then, you know, it's William of Ockham and Abelard are talking about the ass as well. It's very cool. We'll get we'll get there. Um, just one more thing before we really get into the body of the book. Um, is, is more on the historiography of this. I see it as part of medieval literature. I see that. I recently did an interview with Jamie Kreiner about her new book, Legions of Pigs in the Early Medieval West, which is a lovely book. Um, and this, of which, like, these are kind of co-evocative. And it feels like there's like maybe a growing body of study on animals and, or agriculture. How do you, how does that appropriate? Um, I think so. My
1: when I was invited to write the book, it uh, was another scholar from the Reynard Society, uh, who's probably more focused on animals than, than I am, um, or was. And um, she approached me and said, would I be interested in writing a book on, on the ass? Because she'd seen my paper a few years earlier. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, I think that would be, um, I think I could do that. That I think there's enough material there. And she said, I'm going to pitch an idea to the University of Wales Press about a series on medieval animals. Um, and she was successful. So I think you're right. I think there is a growing interest um, in animals in the medieval world, in animals in general, um, and that crosses sort of borders. There's interest in animals, you know, how we treat animals, um, how animals interact with us, how we domesticate them, uh, and so on, I, I think you know, not just within the medieval world, but just in general. So yes, I, mm-hmm. think, she, I think she chose her time uh, well, mm-hmm. and the University of Wales press was open to this. And from what I can gather, um, the series is proving to be quite
0: successful. There are other books in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's a great idea. Well, it's such an important, if you think about how overwhelmingly agricultural medieval Europe was, how agricultural Europe still is in large part. It may, it makes great sense, you know, and also of course, as you point out, so regularly, like so well, um, we read everything we need into our animals as well, right? Like the way we talk about, our relationship with dogs, the way we talk about that really, you know, how we use horses. These are all a demonstration of what we're thinking about ourselves, which is of course, an obsession for medievals as it is for modern people. So it's a, it's a great idea. Um, let's, so let's go through the main body of the book a bit. Um, so you start at uh, the first chapter, we're talking about encyclopedists um, as well. And so like for just for instance, What's the conception of the ass we get from, say, Isidore of Seville?
1: Yeah, um, Isidore is, again, uh, well, he's relying on the classical authors. I mean, he basically just paraphrases people like Pliny the Elder um, and Aristotle, who, you know, wrote the first encyclopedias um, and and wrote about every animal that they knew about. Uh, So Isidore sort of copies um, what they've said, and he says it's a, a... I think he says it's a slow, sluggish beast, um, but it's easily captured and domesticated. So obviously, um, you know, they were easy to train uh, and therefore, you know, they were the ideal animal to help them um, on the farm as a pack horse uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And then that, that reputation is sort of cemented in stone at that point. Um, because the, the later medieval encyclopedists like Albert the Great, Thomas of Cantenpre, um Bartholomew the Englishman, uh, they're basically, again, paraphrasing Isidore, who's paraphrasing the classical authors. And so this mm-hmm. reputation of the ass as this slow, stubborn beast um, is one that's just perpetuated.
0: Right. Oh, and the, but both of these things are, you know, so it's hardworking, good. I mean, slow and stubborn, but also patient and useful. I mean, you see this, it's not, I hesitate to say a complex picture of the ass, but it's definitely, um, you know, multifaceted and overall a very useful beast. Certainly. I mean, it
1: starts, like I said, it starts as this slow, stubborn beast. Um, Isidore does say that it's very hardworking, but as we get into the later Middle Ages, you know, the 1100s, 1200s, what people are doing then is um, they're, they're putting a religious slant on it and they're seeing that Christ, in the, in the Bible, Christ has a strong association with the donkey. So how how do they bring that into the, the picture when other people are saying, oh, it's just this stupid beast, you know? So... You're right. It has this eclectic reputation where, on the one hand, it's quite negative. But on the other hand, if we're going to associate it with Christ, then we're going to emphasise the fact that it's a patient beast, that it's a humble beast and that it's worthy of respect in a
0: way. Sure. Right. Um, which you really get into in the religious ass. Um, and I absolutely love this chapter. On one level, I will admit I'm just a 14 year old boy. Right. So I just giggled while I was saying the religious ass over and over again. <laughs> it was, it's shameful. But m- more to the point, my scholar brain really enjoyed this source material and the analysis. And it was so much fun to think about. You know, the ass is one of God's creations and and thus worthy of some respect and is used like the whole rest of the creation, though, didactically, right? What can we learn from the ass? And a whole lot of medieval ink is spilled to explain Christ riding an unbroken ass. There's so much discussion of this. This is so important. What does this signify? Why is Christ on an ass? Yeah, um, well, it's... It depends who
1: you are as to what it signifies. Um, it depends who you're writing for, who your audience is. Um, in, in one respect, it's signifying um, the Jewish population. In another respect, it's signifying the humble Christian uh, who submits to Christ uh, readily um, and so on. So, yeah, it's it's a, it's a fascinating uh, take on why does Christ deliberately ask for an unbroken ass to ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday um, mm-hmm. and these medieval scholars were writing about it and coming up with uh, a few different reasons why um, but uh, going back to what you said at the beginning about having a chuckle about the <laughs> chapters, I have to say I had great fun um c- <laughs> yep. coming up with them and even deciding were we going to call the book Introducing the Medieval Ass or were we going to call it
0: Introducing the Medieval Donkey? Um, you know, we had to go Ass, with clearly. Yeah, no question. Definitely. The medieval ass is the way to go. Uh <laughs> yeah. So good. I'm I, I I am heartened by that response to know that I'm not alone. Um Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, that in itself, the amount that we can just, like, ass is fundamentally an amusing word. And because of the way, like, of these connotations, right, that the ass is a little bit slow, not the smartest, but there's also that element, too, like, you know every now and then i find myself calling my partner an ass and what i mean is he's I'll, like i'll say stopping such a jackass <laughs> and what i mean is he's being a trickster he's being a, a problem he's causing me you know he's he's out of control he's acting you know like perhaps like the devil who the ass can also reflect
1: mm. yes and um again in um in the best juries um, the Book of Beasts that uh, were very popular in, in the 1100s or 1200s. Um, they were quite, the ass was quite often associated with the devil, um, particularly because uh, of its loud braying. And again, that goes back to the encyclopedias. The encyclopedias talked about how the wild ass uh, brays. And it's very loud. It's very ugly. Um, and so later medieval writers who had this religious background um, were associated that with the devil, um, you know, because it happens that the ass at night, apparently. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, that's the devil uh, looking out for sinners and it's a time when Christians should be very careful um, and and so on. Um, And again, it goes back to... A didactic text. It's teaching. It's teaching the reader, mainly a Christian reader, how to behave, how to avoid temptation, how you know mm-hmm. avoid the the loud braying ass at night because that's the devil and he'll lead you into temptation. Um, it, it's trying to keep the Christian on on the true path and guide them towards salvation. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know,
0: and yeah, I mean, which is past. a good part of. The the bestiaries do this, right? And and these listeners, these are wonderful sources, and there are actually a few of them that are that are available online. And so, you know, just go go Google medieval bestiary and you will not be sorry. You will probably go down a rabbit hole, but you will enjoy it. Um but they're they're very didactic and and so we again we learn so much about ourselves. But so we go from this kind of, you know, there's also um then the debate of philosophers and Um, I want to focus on, I mean, let's pick William of Ockham and his use of the ass. That seems a good example, right? Um, And he uses the ass to discuss free will of all things. Um, Can you explain that? Um, I have
1: to say that writing the chapter on the scholastic ass was the most challenging chapter that I wrote because I'm not a philosopher. Um, But Ockham was... um, Ockham was interesting. I think what you find is that these uh, scholars who have like a philosophical approach, um, we're talking about the leading academics of their time and I think mm-hmm. there were lots of egos um, in play. So Ockham had his rivals and what these scholastics would do would be to, um, they would give public um talks on on what they believed you know on their work so to speak and people would be able to ask questions and challenge them and he had a rival john buridan um there were contemporaries um but from what i can gather they came from two different schools of thought and they didn't get on very well and yes they so William of Ockham does have this theory on free will, but so does uh, John Buridan. And um, the re- listeners are probably more familiar with the theory of Buridan's ass, which um, the theory goes that if an ass is placed between two bales of hair, equal distance, it won't know which one to choose because they're equally as good. And so in that case, it will choose neither and it will starve and die. And this was part of the free will. It didn't have the free will, or it had it exercised free will but couldn't make a choice, and that was Buridan's theory. Mm -hmm. Actually, he never said that, and if he did, it's not written down anywhere today. Uh, But it's been ascribed to him. But regardless, oh oh no, um, (laughs) let's just say that's his theory. William of Ockham disagreed, and. So he comes out with this very sort of scathing comment uh, and calls his own opponent an ass. <laughs> so so he's, he's sort of, um, you know, again, it, I think I think what I found fascinating was it just goes back to ego. Um, I'm, I'm William of Ockham and you should be listening to me and I have all the right things to say and don't be listening to that buried and over there because he's just an ass and his theory on free will well it's just nonsense um yeah. I think that was the thing that I, I got from it and I tried to simplify it as much as I could in the chapter mm-hmm. so that people could a- appreciate
0: uh, that right. side of things well because it works on both levels right I mean if you're a medieval if you were a contemporary of these two it works as their argument. They're discussing the ass, and and they're discussing, you know, what's what's the point of free will if you don't have the intellect to use it? These are important questions. These are like central to be to the human existence, but also, you know, that they, they are <laughs> they are also just petty little men who are being rude to each other, and it's it makes perfect sense that they use the ass for this. Um, you know, also Abelard. Uh, Peter Abelard is is similarly uses the ass, and he's quite famously a bit of an ass himself, right? Um, Correct. So this works as well, uh, you know. So I think that, like uh, this is an interesting chapter, and you do a very good job with it. You know, medieval philosophy is not necessarily my bag either, but it becomes very clear. And the, these it's the such a I think that the ass is a wonderful place to get at medieval philosophy, actually, because unless unless you really want to. Debate in your head the merits of free will on the human existence in the medieval era, um, just knowing it helps you understand that what's at stake. It's, it's a good idea. And then your, fa- your final chapter, uh, The Ass in Literature, you examine... Um, these Fabio, which clearly are very close to your heart and you've written about them before. And mm-hmm. listeners, they are an, they're so popular. It is very hard to overestimate the import of these. They, I mean, because we have them in written form, right? But they're an oral tradition, yes? Mm-hmm. Like, how is the medieval audience interacting with this material? It,
1: it, that's, that's a big question. I don't have the answer. Um, so from my perspective... <clears throat> yes they are an oral performance I mean they were I think that they were written down so that people mm. <clears throat> who were the performers have like a, you know the workbook if, if you like mm-hmm. uh, to remind them of what the stories were but they're all um, they're all in rhyme they've got a, a nice rhythm to them when they're said uh, which would ha- make it easy to remember them um, I think mm-hmm. once you're performing them mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's not been a lot of scholarship on the actual performance of the fabliaux and hmm. we don't know for sure um but of course they, they were performed they they were um you know dictated um read out and i'm sure that when the the jongleurs and the minstrels and whoever were were reciting them that there was probably ad libbing um mm-hmm. and there was probably also hand movements, gestures, um, and things like that. So to, to add to the humour. But even just reading them as they are, um, mm. th- there are some 1970s tra- translations into English which really sit in the 1970s, un-PC uh, world uh, which I think mm-hmm. really get to the heart of what the Fabio were about so they're slightly more ribald and slightly more risque mm-hmm. than some of the modern translations more modern translations that are around uh, right now yeah, sure. um, yeah our sensibilities have definitely so you changed you get the sense um, of, of them being you know highly entertaining Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can imagine them being performed in a tavern can, when everybody's had a bit of a drink. I can imagine them <laughs> being performed in the market square on market day when there's a you know a crowd of people, um, and, and so on. in in a In a court, you know, in a, a royal court, I can imagine them being delivered there for for entertainment mm-hmm. as well. So they, they cross the social classes, if you like.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, especially you can, that becomes really clear if you look at some of their predecessors and uh, descendants, right. If you look at Apuleius's golden ass, if you look at Boccaccio's Decameron, um, there's this, it's clear that there, there are many ways to tell these stories and they're very familiar themes. Right. And there are some themes that come through repeatedly. Um, so like, let's, let's look at the, the, this is a great place. Um, Talk to me about the Testament of the ass and what that, that the secular tale that's very popular. What does that tell us?
1: Um,
0: Well, tell us the story, if you don't mind a little story time.
1: Um, So if I, if I remember it now, so the story is that uh, a priest, uh, owns a donkey owns an ass it's it's been a loyal and faithful ass for 20 years and it dies and the priest is is very upset and so he buries the ass in the cemetery <laughs> and then the bishop finds out that the ass has been buried in the cemetery, I and mean, that's a big no-no. Animals, cemeteries are only for humans. Only humans are going to heaven. Animals are not. Um, animals are usually sort of left outside the city gates uh to, to rot, particularly well, asses were in particular. So the bishop calls the priest to explain himself, and the the priest realizes he's in a bit of bother here. So he says. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he says, uh, what happened was this. He said, you know, the um, the ass, um, when he died, when the ass died, it left a will, um, a last will and testament. And it's left all its money to you, Bishop. And the Bishop says, oh, thank you very much. I'll, I'll take that. Um, that, that little legacy, if you don't mind. Um, and so the story ends with uh, everyone's happy. The the ass remains in the cemetery. The, the priest is happy because the ass is, is nearby and the bishop's happy because he's got some money. Um, so that that's the gist of the story. That's the bare bones. Um, if you want to break that down, I mean, right at the very beginning, I said that the ass had served the, the priest faithfully and loyally so that's again in well that's in that religious uh setting of what we expect from from an ass that you know it mirrors mm-hmm. christ it mirrors the good christian um in that it serves christ through the work it's done for the for the priest um the other thing is the uh, the way the bishop accepts the money so there's um the prevailing thought or rumors in this particular period of time was that uh, many many bishops were accused of of being greedy of taking money for themselves and not for the good of um, the Christian flock and to me this is a prime example this is uh, an author having a, a, a bit of a dig a bit of a, a mm-hmm. you know casting an aspersion on a greedy on a greedy bishop um, I think the humour comes from the fact that the ass is buried in consecrated ground. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, people have when I present when I've presented this at at um, academic conferences, people have said, "Do you think it, it it's all about the emotional connection between man and animal?" Um, and I think it is, but only up to a point because the mm-hmm. fabio are not about uh, the touchy feely oh, poor poor priest, he's upset that his donkeys died. There's a little bit of that, but I think the author's using that as a stepping stone to then shock you mm-hmm. um, sure, into, yeah. oh, he did what? He put the donkey <laughs> right. in the cemetery. You know, everybody would have known that that was a big no-no. Um,
0: sure, and, and it it's yeah, on a literary tradition as well, right, where animals acting in ways they're not supposed to, um, and then of course, priestly avarice, like the, the greed of the church is a theme that we're going to see a lot. So the, yeah, that makes sense. But then just the absolute, like laugh out loud of a, of a donkey of a priest bearing his donkey, where he's supposed to be putting consecrated, you know, like this is for souls, um, in consecrated ground. It's, it, and it is funny and it, it shocks, you know, it still works. Um, And then, but I want to talk about one more story from that, which is the fable of the ass and the lapdog, which is another kind of theme. There's a lot of thematic elements that you're going to see throughout the period and well into the Renaissance. All right, so can you tell us this story? Sure. Um, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, the fable (coughs) of the ass and the lapdog
1: is that, um, is it a farmer? I'm not sure. But anyway, a a man has... um, yeah it must be a farmer anyway the man has um, a lap dog and he lavishes a lot of attention on it and the the donkey works very hard for the man but he doesn't get the same sort of adulation and so the donkey's quite jealous and then one day he decides well i'm going to sit on the farmer's knee and uh, he can pat me and stroke me like he does the lap dog but of course i mean you can imagine the image of a, a donkey trying
0: to sit on somebody's <laughs> knee. You know, it's totally ridiculous. It's, yeah, it's, donkey, it's funny on its face, yeah.
1: Yeah, and the donkey earns a, a sound beating for <laughs> for doing this. And the moral of the story is that um, it's basically know your place, know where you uh, stand in society. You know, an ass is always an ass, and it's never going to be a lap dog. Um, and That story was that that fable um, that would have been very well known was taken and modified um, by a Spanish author, um, a priest who wrote a book uh, of the Book of Good Love, I think it's called. And um, in it, he he changes the farmer becomes um, a, a woman, a, a mistress, uh, a well-to-do mm-hmm. woman, and she has the little lap dog, and the the ass is very jealous of all the attention. It's exactly the same format, uh, but the language in this story takes on a very sexual um, aspect. So in medieval society, small furry animals uh, were often a symbol for the woman's like sexual uh, or the woman's
0: sex I don't know what
1: I'm allowed to say mm-hmm. uh, so anything we'd... you
0: want like so go right ahead and say genitals let's go with that yeah, like...
1: other <laughs> regions you know so the way the authors built this story, you can see that, you know, when the lady strokes the the dog while it's sat on her lap, there's this strong sexual connotation, mm-hmm. as well as the fact that it sits beneath like a um, a fur rug on her on her lap mm-hmm. as well. And so, um, oh, there's language about the dog licks and kisses her. But again, it, it it's not just, you know, mm-hmm. oh. In my face there's there's a whole sexual right um, yeah, connotation man. to this so of course when the ass decides he's going to um sit on the mistress's knee um he like the dog raises himself up on his back legs and of course he's exposing his um his phallus um <sighs> you know his his manhood um and again he earns a good beating um <laughs> But the whole thing is just it's reworked to mm-hmm. um, I think show the sexuality of women
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and to show it as a maybe a, a not so much a yeah a dangerous thing in a way. The, mm-hmm. the ass again gets a beating. It's men that come to do the beating of the ass. they've got like phallus-shaped clubs um, mm-hmm. it, you know I think the image in the book, which is actually from the ass and the lapdog, fable from the traditional fable mm-hmm. uh, again there's still sexual connotations in that um mm-hmm. as well as the reworking um
0: yeah it's uh, yeah that that is that was that's lovely i want to spend some more time with the fable of the ass and the lapdog as well now um because it's so i mean it's so ribald, particularly the later spanish code it's so sexual it's so over the top i mean hilariously so and i'm imagining a performance of that what that must look like right it's a funny story um and, but then it's also this cautionary tale about female sexuality um and 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 i think these two like the way this um the ass and the lapdog these these things the testament of the ass like i think that there's a lot in the ass in literature that really shows us uh, the complexity of the ass and the importance of the ass in medieval society, which is really enjoyable. Um, and it's it's this is such a tidy book. You get in, you do the, you explore it. we I understand, and you're like, and there's the ass, and it's really nicely put together. I really enjoyed the book. I highly recommend it, of course. Um, and it feels like you kind of you've reached a point with the ass so are you gonna are you working on the ass some more what's next um
1: so i think one of the things uh, i've done since because the book is only thirty thousand words so yeah, you know it. it's a it's a short book uh, as you said mm-hmm. i i had to get in there tell the story and then move on to the next story and there is so much to say um about mm-hmm. the ass but um because of all the the research that I did all the sources that I I found the things that didn't make the book and also more modern uh experiences of the ass what I've actually started a blog um and mm-hmm. it's it's you know uh, bloggingdonkeys.com, a very simple <laughs> title um and I haven't actually used it, I don't think, very many medieval sources. I've probably gone for the more modern things at the moment. But it's, it's like the gift that keeps on giving because I, I was going to keep, uh, maintain the blog for a year, see how many blog posts I had, but we're 18 months in um, and I've, I can just keep going. I don't think there's any end um, to, to this. Um, there's, there's so much to say oh, about wonderful. the ass. In our world, in the centuries yeah. after the medieval society and the medieval world itself, so
0: there's, um, yeah, I mean, it's it, this thing is with us, right? This animal is so important and it's so intertwined. Um, and still, you know, um, when I was reading about the brain donkey, I was thinking about, you know, I had students in Morocco in this little oasis village. I was trying desperately to sleep, and there was a horrible donkey. And I'm like, I get that he is the devil. I was thinking that (laughs) two in the morning when there was a donkey braying next to my head, I was like, Good God, man! They're so loud, and they do kind of sound, yeah, dim demonic. (laughs) You know, in the middle of the (laughs) night in the dark, dark desert. What the hell is this thing? Um, There's so much more to do here. I'm so glad you're not done, and I—I mean, you could have been. You tell your story. You could be done. But I'm glad to see that there's more donkey coming our way. Well done. Uh, excellent. I have taken enough of your time. Thank you so much for meeting with me at the end of your day. Um, I'm about to start mine here in Amsterdam. Um, so thanks very much for meeting me, meeting with me. And I'm looking forward to reading more about donkeys in the future. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Wonderful. Goodbye.